Last week, we started looking at a really interesting passage of Scripture. It's Jesus' last night on earth, and he's reclining around a dinner table with his 12 disciples, and he's giving them final instructions before he is uh, wrongly accused, condemned to the cross, and murdered. And he tells his disciples that he wants them to go spread the news to the ends of the earth about him and about his salvation. And he tells them that as they do that, he wants them to do it a certain way. He wants them to love one another. And that applies to us too in this room. Jesus wants us Christians to love one another. As we talked about last week, loving one another is more than just a feeling. It's much deeper than that. And Jesus' short definition is that loving one another is about treating one another the same way that he has treated us. And unfortunately, because churches are made up of far from perfect people, and many Christians in churches, um, the, they, they fail terribly, unfortunately, at, at loving one another. That's the reality we live in. And, and this week, as I was reading about this a little bit, I came across a, a list of some of the silliest church fights in recent history. And it's sad that a list like this actually exists. Um, but for anyone who's been part of a church for any length of time, you know that churches, if they're not careful, can get into fights over ridiculous things. Uh, let me read a few of the church fights that stood out to me. There was a church fight over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Um, one church had a serious fight over <laughs> whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. There was a major church fight, get this, and a church split that happened when a church member hid the vacuum cleaner from some other church members. Uh, There's a church fight over whether to use the term pot luck instead of pot blessing. There's a church fight over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at church meals. Okay, get this, two different churches, and these are real, these are real, this is not a list, this is real. Two different churches reported church fights over the type of coffee they used. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. And in the other church, they simply moved to a stronger Folgers blend. And in the latter situation, members left the church. <laughs> there was a church fight over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. Now these, I could go on and on. There was, I just tried to pick some of them, but... These fights sound really silly, but the sad reality is that churches fight over and actually split over things like this every day. And all the while, Satan sits back and laughs at how easily we take the bait to involve ourselves into church conflicts. And he laughs, Satan laughs, because what happens is he has this effect on people in the church, whether they're Christians or not, and they go gossip to their friends and their coworkers about how terrible their church is. And as a result, the desire of Christians and non-Christians to participate in God's church goes down the tubes. That's how Satan uses it. Now, every church is made up of sinful people, but 
God's desire and plan for us as one body is to obey him because he has a lot to say about this. God's desire is that we would obey him in the way that we treat one another in our church. And as a result, this is what God wants to see happen. Each of us individually will be transformed. He transforms us. And as we individually are transformed, our church as a body is transformed more into the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so we, what happens is we will more and more reflect back to God and out to the world the beautiful glory of God. We will become a bride more fit for our perfect groom, Jesus. So each of us Christians, it starts with you. It starts with me. We have to ask ourselves, am I committed to obeying Jesus? Am I committed to obeying his commands for how I should treat my brothers and sisters in Christ? Is this the desire of my heart? Do I want to work at loving one another just as Jesus has loved me? Am I committed to making this church body a more beautiful and glorious community to be part of? Let's open our Bibles up to John 13, uh, verse 34. If you've got your Bible, that's where we're going to be in today. Almost always when I prepare a sermon, I'm like, we're going to make it this far. And then I get going and I'm like, okay, we're doing one verse today. So we're at John 13, 34. And the reason is because, man, this is so much of what the Bible talks about. It's loving one another. Dear Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to read your word in our language. We thank you for your love for us, your compassion, your patience with us, your forgiveness, and your faithfulness to us. We ask that you would transform us by the power of your spirit today. Please help us to learn to love you and to love one another in a way that brings you glory. Please bless the kids and the teachers and the nursery workers. Please protect all of our kids. Please protect all of us from Satan and his demons and any other distractions that may keep us from this very important passage. We pray all of this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so remember Jesus is speaking to his disciples, around 12 people in the room, over dinner in the upper room in Jerusalem. And he says this in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So we talked about last week the fact that Jesus here is defining love. Talked about the fact that in our world, love is very... It's like trying to nail jello to a wall. There's a lot of different definitions. It's kind of whatever you want it to be. But Jesus says that's not true. I am love. There's a specific definition of love. And that is you should love one another the same way that I have loved you. And so in order for us to love one another in this way, we have to understand how has Jesus loved us. 
And I want to begin by doing that today by just looking at three ways that Jesus explicitly loves us according to the Gospel of John, okay? And after that, we'll talk about how we can love one another. How do we do that as a church? So let's start, though, with this. Three ways that Jesus has loved us. First, Jesus has loved us the same way that God the Father has loved him. In John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Live in my love. Remain in my love. Stay in my love, okay? Jesus has loved us. Think about that, okay? He has loved his church the same way that God the Father has loved him. It's almost too hard to comprehend. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Now, think about this. A human parent's love, this is the best analogy we can really think about. A human parent's love for his or her child may be almost unmeasurable. It might be the greatest love in this world that we can think of. But even a parent's love for his or her child is imperfect. It's not perfect because human love is warped by sin and brokenness. But think about that. If that's how a loving human parent feels about his or her child, willing to do anything to save, to help that child, then how much greater must be the perfect love of God for his perfect son, who is also God and who is also without sin? And the way that God the Father has loved Jesus the Son is the same way that Jesus has loved us who belong to him. Amen? That's incredible. Throughout the gospel according to John, Jesus gives us a few descriptions of how the Father has loved him. In John 5.20, Jesus says that the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Father shows the son all that he himself is doing. So God the Father loves Jesus by revealing himself to him fully. Okay? He allows Jesus to fully know his own feelings, his own purposes, his own plans. And in the same way, Jesus has loved us this way, by fully revealing God to us in human flesh. Jesus has revealed to us the truth about God, the truth about you and me, the truth about this world that we live in. And he has told us the way to be saved from our sin, from our brokenness in our lives and in this world around us. He hasn't hidden this from us. In John 5, 26, Jesus says that God the Father has granted Jesus the Son to have life in himself. He's granted Jesus to have life in himself. This means that Jesus has full authority, full power to exist forever because he has life in himself. Jesus has full power to um, grant this life to whomever he wants. Okay? So it's in him and he can give it away to whomever he wants. And that's exactly how Jesus has loved us. By saving us from eternal death, and by granting us eternal life when we trust in him. 
In John 15, 10, Jesus says that God the Father is pleased to have his son Jesus abide in his love, to live in his love. The Father is pleased to cover his son Jesus with his love completely and to have Jesus stay there forever, to have him stay in his love. And this is exactly what Jesus offers to you and me, to give us eternal life and eternal security, to keep us covered by his blood forever so that we can approach God confidently, so that we can live with God now and forever. Amen? That's awesome. So those are just a few ways that God the Father has loved his son, and that subsequently the son has loved us. Jesus has loved us just as God the Father has loved him. Now let's talk about a second way that Jesus has loved us. Jesus has loved us in a way that seeks to honor God the Father. Okay. He has loved us in a way that seeks to honor God the Father. So often in the Gospels and in the New Testament epistles, we read that Jesus' acts of love toward us are done with the purpose of glorifying God the Father. The intent is to glorify God the Father. For example, in John 10, 25... Jesus says that all the works he does are done in the name of God the Father. Okay. So everything Jesus does is for the glory of God the Father. Everything he does is, for the, is by the power, by the authority that God the Father has given to him. In John 13, 31, Jesus says that God the Father is glorified in him. So this is Jesus' aim, to do everything in a way that brings honor and glory to God the Father. And Jesus is the only one who has done this perfectly. He's the only one who has perfectly honored and glorified God the Father. In John 12, 27 to 28, when Jesus is horrified by the thought of going to the cross, talked about this maybe a few months ago, he's horrified by this. He's horrified by the thought of going to the cross and having the wrath of God towards the sin of the world laid out onto him. And he says, Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Then he prays, Father, glorify your name. So even in Jesus' horrific anticipation of the cross, which he would be murdered on to save us, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. So even in Jesus' anticipation of enduring God's wrath towards sin, he is ultimately concerned about thinking in a way that honors God, feeling in a way that honors God, and acting and speaking in a way that honors God the Father. And by loving us, Jesus has honored the Father because the Father loves us too. He's the one who sent his son Jesus to die for us, to forgive us so that we could be with him forever. So loving one another in our church means seeking to love one another in a way that honors God the Father. Jesus has loved us in a way that seeks to honor God the Father. And the third way that Jesus has loved us is by laying down his life for us. In 1 John three sixteen, John writes, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In John 15, 12 to 13, Jesus tells us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus has already loved us in the most ultimate way by laying down his life to save ours. And my guess is that most of us in this room will not have to express our love for one another at Cedar Home by physically dying for one another. That is happening in other places in the world. And it could happen here, but my guess is for the majority of us, that's not the way it's going to look. Even if we're not a physical sacrifice for one another, though, in this way, Jesus commands us to be a spiritual sacrifice for one another and for the glory of God. What does a sacrifice do? It dies to itself. We die to our own desires. We die to our preferences in order to love others like Jesus loved us. Laying down your life for others often means laying down your own wants in order to love others. Often truly loving others means painfully sacrificing part of yourself. And it hurts. (laughs) For example, a few ideas. If you're in a conflict with somebody, then you love him or her when you lay down your prideful desire just to be right. And instead, you're more concerned with being reconciled to that person in a God-honoring way. So many of our conflicts, I know because this is a lot of what I do, (laughs) meeting with people and helping them resolve conflicts. If you go into a meeting thinking, how can I be reconciled with this person? And how is that going to affect the way I talk and what I talk about and what I bring up? It's going to be an entirely different meeting than if you're going and say, I'm going to go chew them out. Totally different. Our goal is reconciliation. That's our goal as Christians, just like Jesus has reconciled us to God the Father. Maybe you're engaged in a sinful habit or a relationship, and it's unhealthy for you. It's unhealthy for your family. It's unhealthy for your church. Well, your options are either you can stay in sin, you can keep being sinning and, and keep this reputation that you think you have, or you can be honest and you confess your sins to others and lay down your reputation for the sake of doing what's right. And that's actually the kind of reputation you want to have anyway. Being the kind of person who confesses sin and apologizes and gets right with people and is humble before the Lord. Maybe you're in a disagreement with another Christian about some decision, and you both want different things, and the way that you can love that other person is by laying down your own desires and either compromising with them or by just doing things their way. If it's not against Scripture, if it's just a preference, compromise or do things their way. Serve them. Or maybe you are saving your money up for a special purpose, but you know another Christian who's having financial problems or a family emergency of some sort. Well, you love them when you lay down your money for them to bless them, even if it sets you back for a while. 
Jesus has laid us by laying down his life for us. And as John writes, we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. And almost always in a church like Cedarhome, loving one another like this will be through acts of service toward one another, sacrificing for one another, and acting humbly toward one another. So this is, okay, so we're still on three ways that Jesus explicitly loves us according to the gospel of John, okay? First, by loving us the same way that God the Father loved him. Second, by loving us in a way that seeks to honor God the Father. And third, by laying down his life for us. These are three of the core benchmarks that we can use to evaluate whether we are truly loving one another in our church. Are we loving one another the same way that God the Father loves Jesus? Are we loving one another in a way that seeks to honor God the Father? Are we loving one another by laying down our lives for one another? You know, it's not possible in one sermon to summarize all of the ways that this type of love shows itself in our lives, because get this, every command in the New Testament is a command to love one another the same way that Jesus has loved us. Get that? Every command. Even when Paul tells the church to expel the immoral brother, that's a command to love him because the idea is not ultimately to ruin him, but to see him repent and come back to the body. Every command is to love one another. So let me give, I, I can do this though. We're not gonna read the whole New Testament. Please do that though. Let's, let me just give a short summary of how these three benchmarks of Jesus' love are articulated in the New Testament. If we had to put them in general categories. And then we'll talk about how we can live this out in our church here and then look at some, a few examples of what it looks like. As the New Testament writers were led by the Holy Spirit, as they meditated on the way that Jesus has loved us, they commanded us Christians to love one another like this. We're commanded as Christians to love one another by welcoming one another and greeting one another with genuine love and concern for one another. We're commanded to live in harmony with one another. We're commanded to have no division among us, to agree with one another, to live in peace with one another, to submit to one another. We're commanded to encourage one another with our words and with our actions. In fact, we're encouraged, we are commanded to outdo one another in honoring one another. We're commanded to serve one another, to act humbly toward one another, and to pray for one another. Now keep in mind, obviously, and I talked about this last week, this is all in the context of the church. Of course we're supposed to love people outside the walls of our church and non-Christians, but it starts here. It starts here, okay? And these are all given in the context of one another. He's talking to the church. We're called, we're commanded to be kind to one another, to take care of our brothers and sisters who are widows and orphans or poverty-stricken. We're commanded to teach one another and to exhort one another to do good works, to show hospitality to another, one another without grumbling, it says. Commanded to not speak evil against one another, to not grumble against one another, to not lie to one another, 
but instead to confess our sins to one another. We're commanded to not repay anyone evil for evil, but to seek to do good to one another. We're commanded to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to restore one another, and to comfort one another. These are the majority of categories of loving one another that we see in the New Testament. So in the spirit of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, this is what he would say, I think, because he says it. (laughs) That's great if you've got a lot of people coming to your church. But if you and your church are not loving each other like this, who cares? That's what he says. He's straight up. And James says it too. Your faith is dead. It's great if you've been living as a, if, if you're a Christian, oh man, I've been a Christian for a long time. That's great. But you know what? If you're not loving other Christians like this, what does it matter? It's great if your church has a long menu of programs for every type of person in your church, but if you're not loving one another like this, it doesn't matter. Listen, God is not nearly as concerned about the amount of programs we offer as a church as he is about the amount of love we have for one another. Programs come and go. Will the love remain? That's the important thing. So how do we do this? How, why is it so much harder to talk about this to, than to do it? How do we fill ourselves with a desire to love one another? How do you amp yourself up to love your neighbor? Well, it's a big, it's a big duty. It's a big, uh, it's a big job here. How do we love one another like Jesus has loved us with the love that God the Father has for him and by loving others in a way that honors God the Father and by laying down our lives for one another. It starts with this. Jesus says the only way you can love one another like this is to be born again. The only way to want to love one another in a way that radically contradicts our sinful human nature is to be a new creation. The only way to want to honor God by the way that you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ is to be born again. We had a great question come up in our community group several years ago. We were going through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. One of the questions was, well, can't you be a non-Christian and do all this too? That's a good question. Yeah. But the question is, what's driving it and for whose glory are you doing it? God has to make you new. God has to give you a new heart that wants him more than you want your flesh. You have to come to a point, and this is what has to happen. I was talking to somebody this week about this. You have to come to a point in your life when you are broken and when you realize you're completely helpless and you need a savior. Get that? You have to believe that you can do nothing God glorifying on your own. Jesus isn't a God that you add to your mantle of other gods. You take everything off and put Jesus on there, period. That's, where, that's what it means to trust in Jesus alone. God has to remake you. He must, Paul says, regenerate you. He must put your old self to death and give you a new life. That's the only way we can one, love one another the way that Jesus has loved us. 
And in order for this to happen, you must trust Jesus and you must believe first that Jesus loves you. It starts with you. You can't give Jesus' love away if you haven't believed that his love is for you also. You must believe that Jesus is God and that he died and he rose again and that he did this because God loves you. The Father, the Son, the Spirit loves you, has created you to be a recipient of God's love and also a giver of God's love forever. You must trust Jesus and in his love first. And if you become connected to Jesus through faith, when, this is what happens. It says Jesus unites you to himself, okay? He grafts you in. When this happens, then his love will flow into you and then through you like water flows from the vine into the branches. This is the picture given to us several times in the New Testament. In Ephesians three seventeen to 18, the apostle Paul writes, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And then in John 15, Jesus says that he is the vine. We are the branches. So we must abide in him in order to stay alive, in order to stay healthy, in order to bear his fruit. And so Paul and Jesus both use this plant analogy to show us that unless we are rooted in Christ, unless we are connected to his love, unless we're united to him through faith, we cannot give God's love to one another. So we first must believe that Jesus loves us, and then we must abide in his love. That's where we rest through a simple faith in the gospel. We, this is what we savor Okay, this is truth that we should savor every day and you don't need to feel bad about it and I don't need to feel bad about it and I'm preaching to myself too. Is that God loves you. Savor that. He's proven it. And he made you to be a recipient and a giver of that love to shine his glory through you everywhere you go. Now, taking everything we've studied so far about this, okay, how do we harness all this? How do we use it to love one another? What does this look like practically in our church? It could look a lot of ways. Like I said, read the New Testament. Here are five examples, though, I just, that came to me. First, when I came to Cedar Home about nine years ago as the youth pastor, I was so excited to make over the basement in the old um, building into an incredible youth room. Okay, I had plans with couches and video games and booths and pool tables and ping pong tables and a nacho machine. I'm like, we got to have one of those. Um, everything that teenagers would think was cool, I wanted it to be a place that teenagers would want to be. About two weeks after moving here, right when I was about to pull the trigger on all these cool ideas, I learned that the basement was also used by Robin Wyland's Awana group on Tuesday nights. 
And it wasn't going to work for her to have us put stuff on the walls and to have all that furniture in the basement because she needed about five or six tables set up every week with a lot of chairs so that the kids could work in their workbooks. Well, Robin and I could have had the conflict of the decade at Cedar Home. (laughs) We could have. But instead, God helped both of us to compromise. She allowed us to have some of the furniture and pool table and couches in the basement. And on the flip side, the teenagers and I moved the furniture every week and set up tables and chairs every week so that her group could do what they needed to do. Now, I wasn't exactly excited not to have the youth room I'd always dreamed of. But looking back, I know that God was much more honored by the way that Robin and I laid down our own preferences and loved one another week in and week out by sharing that space. That's the truth. God doesn't need TVs and all this fancy stuff to reach teenagers or anybody. You just need the word and the spirit. (laughs) It's what you need and love. The second way that we love one another in the church is largely determined by how we view the church and its purpose. Specifically, do we view this church, Cedar Home, as our own private country club? Is this a small group of people that really likes the way we've been, doesn't want to grow, but only wants to stay with our own little clique? We stiff arm everybody new who tries to work themselves in. Or do we view our church more like the Creation Music Festival that's happening this weekend down in Tacoma, or down uh, in the Tri-Cities area? Is this an exciting place to worship God and to make friends and to experience the power of the Holy Spirit together? There's always room for more. The, the, The more people that come to Christ, the better, the more brothers and sisters in Christ that we get to meet and welcome and encourage and do life with, the better. The more people that serve together, the better. The more impact we can have for the glory of God in our community to the ends of the world, the better. Do we view Cedar Home like that? Because I think that's a much more accurate picture of what heaven's going to be like. Just as Jesus loved us by inviting us into his family and welcoming us into his family, so also we want to love one another by welcoming people into our family at Cedar Home. We want more Christians. We want more disciples. We want more service. We want more leaders. Even if it's inconvenient for us, even if it's hard meeting new people, even if we don't recognize everyone in our church, even if we have new faces in leadership positions, praise God. There are thousands of churches in our country that would die for that and are dying right now and will close their doors this week. Remember that this is Jesus' mission for us. This is not a mission we created. This is Jesus' church. It's not ours. It's not mine. It's not yours. This is Jesus' church. What an exciting thing to be part of, to welcome others into the local church just as Jesus has welcomed us into his family. A third way we love um, one another is by seeking to honor God and one another by the way that we talk. By the way that we talk about one another And by the way that we talk to one another, the New Testament says a lot about this. How do we talk to one another? Do we talk with gentleness and compassion 
and encouragement? Or do we talk to one another with harshness and sarcasm and discouragement? And how do we talk about our brothers and sisters when they're not around? Do we grumble and complain and accuse and gossip about people in our church while we're at the dinner table? Do we post careless words or vague comments of displeasure about one another on Facebook? Just enough so that you're not explicitly slandering somebody, but everybody involved in the situation knows exactly what you're talking about. The New Testament constantly addresses the way that Christians talk about one another because it's a sin so easy for all of us to fall into. Instead of ragging on one another, the the Bible says we should pray for one another, encourage one another, serve one another. Confess your, you wanna be humbled. Confess your own sin to others. This type of love reflects a true desire to have unity. You talk about how God the Father loves God the Son. They're united. This is the type of love that reflects the God, the God the Father's love for his son when we speak well of others. This type of love reveals a desire to honor God with our words. This type of love requires laying down your sinful thoughts, your sinful words, in order to love others by what you say and by what you don't say. Just as Jesus loved you. The fourth way we love one another is by seeking to serve one another while we are serving in the church, okay? Serving in the church is most often a team endeavor. And a healthy team requires teammates that love each other, that serve each other. So whether you're on a a leadership team or a ministry team or you're, you're pulling weeds with a team of people outside, what kind of teammate are you? what kind of teammate would other Christians say that you are? Do you only help out with tasks that you want to (laughs) do? I was thinking about our community group. So we try to do like some lawn projects in May and it's pretty tempting to go for that riding lawnmower job first off the bat instead of moving manure and whatever else somebody needs. But we've got to be humble and say, you know what? You can do the riding lawnmower this time, bud. I'll, uh, I'll, dig, I'll dig holes. Um, do we encourage the other people on our team? Do we bring them down with our attitudes and words instead? Are you only a happy teammate when the team does what you say? Or can you be a team player and submit to the team and gladly do what other people want to do? It's hard. We love one another like Jesus has loved us when we work to maintain unity. That's why it appears in almost every book. The Father and the Son are one. Jesus devotes whole chapters to it. We're going to get to it in the Gospel of John. We love one another like Jesus has loved us when we lay down our desires and, and, and think about others. We honor the Lord when we come to meetings and say, Lord, just please help me to honor you and to honor the people I'll be working with for the next hour. And a fifth way that we love one another that is distinctly Christian is the way that we forgive one another like Jesus has forgiven us. Whenever you enter a church, remember that you're entering a group of people filled with people who are still sinful, who are still 
having bad habits, but who hopefully are becoming more and more free from their sinful behaviors by the power of Christ. Some of these people will intentionally or unintentionally say things to you that hurt your feelings. And some of these people will do things that irritate you and maybe cause you pain. Expect it. Sometimes I think we come to church and we're blown away when somebody offends us. Well, if we really understand how sin has warped us so much, we shouldn't be surprised when other people offend us. Expect it. Do not approve of it. But expect that because the church is full of broken people just like your office place is and your school is and your neighborhood is. Any group of people anywhere is full of broken people. But as we remember the great lengths that Jesus went to to forgive us, may we use that as the power and the catalyst for working to forgive one another. Work hard, try not to hold offenses for a long time. It leads to bitterness. Go to people. Follow Jesus' example, Matthew 18. Go to people. Be reconciled with them. Hear this. Be reconciled with them if your intent is to reconcile with them. Don't go to people if your intent is to chew them out. Chew your pillow out. Chew out your journal. Don't chew out other people. Go to your Christian brother or sister with the intent to get right with them just like Jesus has made you right with God. The desire, this kind of desire for unity in the body is the outworking of the unity that God the Father has with God the Son. This desire to get right with others for the sake of honoring God actually honors God. This willingness to lay down your pride, to confess your sins, to be reconciled with your brothers and sisters in Christ is the desired result God wants for us. So those are just five examples of how we practically love one another in the churches. Jesus has loved us. Lots more examples. There could be, read the New Testament. Jesus has loved us though with an unparalleled love, okay? His love is the sweetness in our souls that we because of his grace, can savor and should savor every day. And his love at the same time is the force that will work through us when we are abiding in him. Now, of course, none of us can love one another completely or as we should, and none of us will do that in our lives. And at the same time, God requires it. He requires perfect love and perfect obedience from us if we're to be with him who is perfectly holy. So this is what it means. Jesus must not only be your example of what love looks like, but he must also and first be the object of your faith as the one who laid down himself to forgive you for your terrible lack of love for other people and for your lack of love toward God. This is why we need Jesus. He, he did this to cover us. Only through faith in Jesus do we receive the forgiveness of God for our sins completely. 
Only through faith in Jesus do we receive the resurrection power to love one another as Jesus has loved us. A new desire to love others. So may we trust in Jesus every day to hold us securely in himself, and he will, because the salvation was started by him. And may we trust in Jesus to empower us and pray and ask for it to be abounding in love toward one another. We're going to take communion together in a minute, and as the servers come forward, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, you are glorious. You are awesome. Thank you for loving us first. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you. We have not loved one another the way that we should and the way that you've told us to. We know that we are we're evil in our flesh, and we're going to stay that way if you don't intervene and help us. So for those of us who don't know you, God, I pray that you would save us, that we would put our faith in you and trust in you, Jesus, alone as the one, the one God in our only hope for salvation. For those of us who do know you, God, may we please abide in you every day through faith. Seek to have fellowship with you throughout the day, to be encouraged by your word and challenged by your word. Help us to encourage one another and to love one another. May we at this church be one team on mission together to enjoy you, Jesus, and to see this world enjoy you as we share you with them. <laughs> we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, on Jesus' last night on earth, he gave us this ordinance of the Lord's Supper or communion to partake, to partake together um, as his church until he returns. And the bread symbolizes Jesus' body, which became our sin and was broken on our behalf in order to suffer God's wrath toward our sin. And the cup symbolizes the blood of Christ, which was shed to forgive us and to reconcile us, to make us friends again with God. If you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord, we invite you to partake in communion with us. Let me pray for the bread. Lord, we thank you, God, for offering your body for us that was broken and beaten, that became our sin on the cross and which died so that our sin dies with it. May you be glorified, God. We know that you have a new body, you're resurrected in power now. We look forward to meeting you face to face. May we celebrate that and may we also consider the great links it took to forgive us for our sin through your broken body. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.